Good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie C., and I'm going to be moderating this meeting for you this morning, the Sunday Special Edition, January 18, 2015. And as I was saying, the share ID for Friday, just to have it on the line here, is 7192. 7192. The focus of this particular meeting this morning is step one. Step one in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. This morning we're going to have eight recovered compulsive overeaters come on and describe paragraph by paragraph just exactly what step one looks like and looks like for them to build you a picture of complete total defeat and a transformation of hope and faith into a life that's full and worth living. And I welcome each one of you to this meeting and very excited to be able to start this quickly <laughs> and hand this off to and begin this wonderful sharing. Today we're going to start with the very first couple of paragraphs and I'm going to introduce Amy G to begin with that for us. Good morning, Amy G. Good morning, Melanie. Can you hear me? I can. Good morning. Welcome to you. Great. Welcome, and thank you so much for your service for moderating. My name is Amy. I am a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here to speak about step one. And just real quick to give a just a 30-second history here. I mean, the big book was published in 1939, the 12 and 12 in 1953. Twelve years have happened here. You know, you look at the foreword of the AA 12 and 12, and it has become, quote, unquote, a worldwide fellowship of over 100,000 alcoholics. You know, they're flocking in by tens of thousands. You know, what are they doing by writing? What is Bill doing by writing the AA 12 and 12? Is he trying to reinvent the wheel? No, clearly something is working. It is growing by leaps and bounds. And if we just go to the forward real quickly on page 17, it says, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, this is in the forward of the 12 and 12, became the basic text of the fellowship, and it still is. This present volume, meaning the AA 12 and 12, proposes to broaden and deepen the understanding of the 12 steps as written in the earlier work. Bill's not looking to reinvent the wheel here. He's looking to expand and broaden the understanding of the 12 steps because our recovery is contingent on us on a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. And what is it that does that? It is the 12 steps. That is where the transformation takes place. And it all starts with step one. So let's get down to business. Now, obviously, it's about the 12 steps and traditions, but for purposes of this share, as, as uh, Mel moderated in the introduction, we're focusing on the steps here. So step one, let me go ahead and read the first two paragraphs. Again, we admitted we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. Who cares to complete? To, who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is truly awful to admit that food for us or glass in hand, we have warped our minds into such, a, uh, such an obsession for destructive drinking and eating that only an act of providence can remove it from us. No other kind of bankruptcy is like this one. Alcohol, food, has now become the rapacious creditor. 
bleeds us of all self, all sufficiency and will to resist its demands. Once this dark fact is accepted, our bankruptcy as going human concerns is complete. Well, there's so much in these two paragraphs that it's, it's hard to focus on one thing, but let's, let's quickly review. If we go to the doctor's opinion in the big book, it talks about this disease being a twofold one. One, a physical allergy, that when I put the binge foods into my system, I develop a phenomenon of craving and I can't stop eating. But it also talks about the mental obsession, which is the greater aspect of this disease. Notice, Bill immediately hones in on this fact, right away getting down to business, the obsession for destructive eating. From the get-go, he's not talking about the allergy. He's talking about the exception. Why? Well, for me, in order to know that I I need to work on a problem, I need to know and admit what the nature of the problem is to know that I have it and, and understand what it's about and then admit it. I mean, how can I fix something if I don't know I have it? That problem it talks about in the big book on page 23 is what's in my mind, meaning the mental obsession. It says it directly on page 23, the problem centers in my mind, and this is what's referring, in my humble opinion, to what is the mental obsession. Why is it when I stood time and time again in front of the refrigerator five bites into a binge against all my intentions, all my will, going, how the hell did I get here? It wasn't the allergy, although... Clearly, that's triggered as soon as I put that food in my mouth and I'm off to the races and cannot stop. What continued to bring me back to the food? It was my mind. Step one, right away in this paragraph, says that my mind is warped. So if we, if we look at this, I, I love to go to the dictionary and get definitions. And when we look at the word warped, it says it's become bent, become twisted, to be altered from a normal or healthy state. If I wasn't altered, I don't know what I don't know who was when it came to compulsive reader. And it also says become, become altered. It's over a period of time that we warp. And I not only warped with my compulsive reading, once we become warped, it doesn't change back. When you warp something, it doesn't change back. And it says only an act of providence can change it, can change it. So again, if we look at providence, it's 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 considered in the definition protective care of God or spirit or spirit that only can change it. So only an act of providence, only my higher power, God, as I choose to see him, can change me. Clearly, this is scary. This is a scary thing to read these first two paragraphs. And every instinct, as it says, cries out against it. What is instinct? An innate pattern of behavior. My family's motto was, all it takes is a little willpower. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, we have a billion-dollar, two, three-billion-dollar industry that says, aren't we supposed to take control of this, try harder? You know, haven't I achieved in other areas? I mean, talk about scary. I came to this room. I came to these rooms of Overeaters Anonymous at age 22. In March of 83, I had no idea that I was dealing with a disease. I mean, I was compulsively exercising. I was bulimic purging 10 and 12 times a day. I was completely powerless over this disease, and yet I thought it was an issue of willpower. I mean, we've been talking about a vision for you these last week over the chapter more about alcoholism. And, you know, it talks about it here on page 38. It says right here, however intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol or food has been involved, we have been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? 
I mean, how am I going to admit powerlessness? I didn't want to admit it. Every instinct cried out. I didn't want to think that I was powerless over food. To me, that was an inanimate object. How can I be powerless over something like that? And because my mind was warped and I was permanently insane in this area of food, I couldn't see the true from the false. It talks about in the big book, we can't differentiate the true from the false. My compulsive overeating life was the only was the only normal one. And I didn't understand at that point what I was what I was coming up against, but I did know that I was crazy. I was crazy with food. And with step one it says we have to admit powerlessness. And the beauty of this twelve and twelve and how it expands on step one from the big book is that Bill knew he had experienced it all. And he knew that if he didn't smash home this idea of powerlessness and needing to accept that fact and admit it, that we would never recover. That step one, for me, is the foundation upon which this whole program is built. I mean, to me, there's like a vicious, if I was to describe it this way, it's like a vicious spiral downward. If I don't admit that I am powerless, I won't work this program. It's pretty clear. If I don't work this program, I will try to go it on my own. If I try to go it on my own, I'm going to take my will back. If I take my will back, I will try to control my eating. And if I try to control my eating, I'm going to start compulsively overeating again. And then the rapacious creditor that it talks about in these two paragraphs was going to bleed me of all self-will to resist its demand. And if we look at rapacious, seizing, grasping for plunder, you know, this disease wants you dead. I have a friend of mine in program that says this all the time. This disease wants you dead. It wants to suck the life out of you and leave you dead by the roadside. Don't doubt it for a minute. And the and, and I believe that to be true. Now, this program has saved my life. This, this rapacious creditor, this compulsive overeating disease would have killed me. And I believe that with all my heart and my soul. I believe that with all of my experience. Uh, you know, I've resigned from the debating society, as they say. And Bill talks about that. He feels so strongly about this 100% mission of powerlessness. This is what step one is about. It's the only step that you can do perfectly is just admit powerlessness and that food was making my life unmanageable. And they feel so strongly about this foundation step that it talks about it in both the AA 12 and 12 and in the big book about this admission. And it says, look, if you don't think that, you know, you're powerless or you need to describe or figure out whether you are, it says here, perhaps you're not an alcoholic or compulsive overeater after all. This is on page 23 in the AA 12 and 12. Why don't you try some more controlled drinking, bearing in mind what we have told you about alcoholism? I mean, they're actually saying, go out there, give it a try. If you're not convinced, go out there, because without this admission of powerlessness, the rest of the steps are not going to work. This program is not going to work. You know, there's a great joke that goes around in the AA room that always like the mafia. Once you get in, you never get out, because you know too much, and it ruins all your binges. I spent four and a half years, I came to OA in 83, and it wasn't until 87, December of 87, I spent four and a half years dying, uh, dying in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous because I would not admit powerlessness. I would not work the spiritual aspect of the program. I tried half measures, and the result was nil, and that was absolutely the case for me. I was tortured, tortured by this disease in Overeaters Anonymous because I would not admit that ultimate powerlessness, and I tried to take my will back time and time again. So it says here, again, says that in the 12 and 12, test it out. It says here in the big book on page 31, 
We do not like to pronounce any individual as an alcoholic or a compulsive overeater, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step Step over into the nearest bar room, and for us we can say buffet, and try some controlled eating. Try to eat and drop, try to eat, drink, stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you're honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of the jitters for you to get a full knowledge of your condition. Well, I don't know about you all. I hope it doesn't take you four and a half years to get full knowledge of your condition. But that's what it took me. You know, and when the pain and the fear of where you are gets bad enough, you'll move. You know, it talks about these methods that we tried. And, yes, it's not about the food. It's about the mental obsession. You know, you come for the vanity, you stay for the the sanity. But what convinced me of my powerlessness? It was my insanity with the food. It talks about in the big book, here are some of the methods we tried. Let me explain to you some of the methods I tried. Maybe you can relate to a few of them. I mean, I've done things that no same person would think of doing. I see that now. But, I, again, I didn't know. I couldn't differentiate the truth from the false. I thought this was normal behavior. I said, I've driven miles in the dead of night to satisfy a craving for food. I've eaten food that is burnt, stale, dangerously spoiled. I've eaten food off of other people's plates, off the floor, off the ground. I've dug out of the garbage and eaten it. I've stolen food from friends, families, employers, as well as from the grocery store, and then I stole money to buy food from friends and family. I've eaten food beyond the point of being full, beyond the point of being sick. Then I puked it up, and I kept on going. Three, four days of binging, massive amounts of weight gain. I continued to overweight. I was mainly disfiguring my body with bulimia and compulsive overeating and anorexia, and I kept on going. I tried to control it. And then I became obsessed with diets. I spent hundreds of dollars on weight loss, fad diets. I bought all sorts of appetite control drugs, illegal, legal or illegal otherwise. I joined diet clubs. I compulsively exercised. I continued to vomit. I was powerless. And I used to actually wish that someone would break my jaw so that I could, I could have an external control on my compulsive overeating. You know, some of these diets, quote, unquote, worked. Because I could stop. And, but the problem was I could never stay stopped. Ultimately, I would be back to eating. The compulsion would return. I'd be compulsively eating and binging and puking my brains out. The weight would come back on and then some. This was the life that I thought was normal. And that is the definition of insanity. I was absolutely powerless, but I had to admit that powerless. And the big book and now the 12 and 12 were very clear. If you don't think you're powerless, Test out a couple of those theories and see if that's not the case because it may be well worth a bad case of the jitters. And I just want to wrap up to say, you know, for me, that was my powerlessness. That was my bottom, my admission of my compulsive overeating and that my life was unmanageable and that I was powerless. It says once that stark fact, fact, it means it is what it is and it has to be accepted. I had to accept the fact that I was powerless. So I just want to say to the newcomer out there, if you are new, you know, we are powerless over the food, but at some point I had to choose, and only I can do that. I had to make that decision and say that I am powerless, that of myself I don't stand a chance against this disease, and that I need help. Because if I'm saying that I'm powerless, I need to reach out, and I need to ask for help. 
And indicative of asking for help means action. If I'm powerless, then i got to ask somebody else for help. And that means I'm going to do what is necessary to put the food down, put boundaries around my food, whatever food plan that is, get a sponsor, and get down to the business of working these life-saving steps. And what about those of us who are in the middle of it? We're in the thick of it now. We're not recovered. We're working the steps. What is step one like for that, for, for, for us? For those of us who are in that place, and I can tell you for me, my step one, my admission of powerlessness at that point was one of accountability, commitment, and gutting it out. Again, the big book says we are restless, irritable, and discontent until we can again sense the ease and comfort that comes from taking a bite, a bite that we see others taking with impunity. I had a dis-ease. I had a discomfort with myself. I didn't want to feel my feelings. I didn't want to grow up. And when I'm working this program, I had to realize that I was going to come up against discomfort and dis-ease. But I had a commitment to the program. I had a fear of not wanting to go back. And I knew that at some point I had to gut it out. It said, at some of these steps and how it works in the big book, at some of these steps we balked, we thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Have measures availed us nothing. I had to be accountable and I had to stay committed because I knew that if I didn't, my life depended on whether or not I worked these steps. And then lastly, for those of us who are covered, I've been blessed with a few 24 hours in these rooms. What is step one for me? What is my mission of powerless for me? Well, it says we have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of a spiritual condition. It's a daily reprieve. So what do I do? Every day is an admission of powerlessness to me. Every day I'm on my knees asking God, saying, God, today I choose to admit my powerlessness. I am just as powerless over my food today as I was from day one. You need to help me today. Guide me today. Give me your will today. And what is that admission of powerless? Again, if it is, it is, for me, it is indicative of action, which means today I'm still going to have the food down. I'm still going to put boundaries around it. I'm still going to do service. Again, nothing ensures immunity from my compulsive overeating than to carry the message to the still-suffering compulsive overeater. I'm going to admit that powerlessness every day by taking the actions of steps 10 through 12, every single day by maintaining my spiritual condition. I see it like this. It's a final picture. Look, my eyes are warped, okay? I can't see unless I put my contacts in every single morning. If I want to be able to see, i got to put those contacts in my eyes. So what do I do? Whether I feel like it, whether I want to do it, whether or not, it's just this habit. I put my contacts in my eyes in the morning, every morning, so that I can see. And that's what this program has done. My step one, my admission of powerlessness says I am warped that on my own, my sick mind cannot heal my sick mind. But with the grace of God in this program and my admission, my choice to admit my powerlessness, to resign from debating, to say I am who I say I am, I am a compulsive reader, I am powerless. Upon that foundation, I build my program. And because of that and working these steps, I am free today. I am free today from that mental obsession. I have been restored to sanity. I am no longer crazy with food by the grace of God and this program. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Amy G. from Maryland. And now I welcome Melanie C. from Oregon to the line. Hi, good morning. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie C. But upon entering AA, we soon take quite another view of this absolute humiliation. We perceive it only through utter defeat. Are we able to take our first steps towards liberation and strength? 
our admissions of personal powerlessness finally turn out to be firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. Absolute means positive, certain, an ultimate basis of reality. Humiliation, to cause a person a painful loss of pride, self-respect, dignity, to mortify. What is being said here is that the very thing that was to be the end, to end all things of hope for me, with the absolute vulgarization of dignity, pride, and self-respect, where one would or could never rise again, turned out to be the very thing needed, the very thing necessary for liberation from the grip of that kind of end. For me, as far as I could think, the deal had been sealed. I was completely wrapped up. Matter of fact, I had prayed for institutionalization. I was almost 300 pounds. I had been eating and dieting compulsively for probably 45 years. I had my first diet probably when I was six years old or something like that. I was wreaking havoc throughout my life and seriously abusing all those things around me. I was beyond obese, a glutton, hideous, disgusting, filthy, and filled with rage. My insanity had taken me from minor thinking errors to a shut-in. In the end, what remained was a shell of a woman in abusive control and power-driven gorging, eating. Without explanation and forethought, food became my central focus over all things and my solution to everything. I faced nothing unless I was drunk with food first. There was this emotional, mental, and physical issues around always being completely wrapped with food. My every affection and true consideration was wrapped in food. It was a central focus. Crazy, though, really, isn't it? I hated it and hated myself. One minute, I was giving in to life the way it was headed. And then in the very next minute, it seemed, I could not stop myself from fighting to prove that I could beat it. I would shiver and tremble as soon as I would begin to ever even consider to committing to putting down this food, submitting to change. I had held on so tightly to my thinking and life as it had become because it was all that I knew to be true and just. It was my survival, this food. I always knew there was something wrong with me. I had ached. Excuse me, just one minute, please. Excuse me, thank you. I had ached every single day of my life. I tried various things to correct these things. Um, these various things became desperate attempts just to secure a place in this world. But when all the ideas had ran their course, it all boiled down to one single idea that I would always come up with. I simply had to lose weight. All of this that was going on around me, and I knew my best thinking was that I simply needed to lose weight. 
that then, of course, my life would be utopia, right? And when I repeated this idea over and over and over again above every other requirement in life for development, I became a one-dimensional human concern. Trapped. How trapped was I? I could not see that food was the answer and the problem. And I could not live at all without it. Not one single moment. This was evident to everyone else around me and to myself based on the amount of times I tried to stop. But still the focus was I just needed to diet. What are the words now? Oh, yeah. How blind I had been. How blind I had been. We perceived that only through utter defeat are we able to take our first steps towards liberation and strength. Is the next line in this paragraph. This is to be able to recognize through our senses and understanding of this real situation. As I pointed out, apparently I had difficulty reasoning and processing reality. It began to seem as though even utter defeat would not save me. I look back and I can see that I had hit bottom dozens of times in my 50 years of living at this particular point. It appeared that the crush of humiliation then was going to have to be bigger than how Melanie felt when I was sober because I hated everything about being sober. It had to be bigger than my mind. It had to be big enough to take me, to truly take out my breath to the bitter end. What does such an experience like that look like? What does it look like to have all of this fight out of me? giving in to the disease? What does it look like to have this existence turn out to be the firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives can be built? Well, I'm going to insert my serial story, my famous serial story. Maybe some of you have heard this before because it is so profound in my life. I was 49 plus years old. I've been solving all my problems for decades, and most specifically in this moment that I'm going to be describing in the few, these last few weeks, with a spoon and a fork. Eh, occasionally, to be honest. It was mostly my fist down inside boxes and bags and cartons. Oh, mercy, I was a hot mess. Hand to mouth, hand to mouth, as long as I was awake. And I'd been suffering insomnia for quite some time. I wanted so badly to stop. I can't even tell you, but perhaps each one of you have understood this place. I wanted to stop. Looking up, I begged the sky to stop me. Looking down, I begged the bedside that I was kneeled against to stop me. I thought all those things were God, and I had no idea. Well, it was morning now on this particular day. And I poured myself up a Jethro-sized bowl of cereal. That's just one short size of a mixing bowl, quite frankly. I added the milk. I included various side dishes. And I bellied up to the kitchen counter and began to eat. I had a lot on my mind. I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. And just as a side note, mind you, I wanted to insert here that I had not dressed or practiced any sort of hygiene for many days. I was disgusting. 
I had a couple of very young boys at home in my care, which I did not tend to. And a husband, God bless him, that traveled from West Coast to East Coast weekly for his work to meet his clients to keep our household running. There were family circumstances going on in my life that really would only read in a paper as horrendous. Yep, this was my family. It was what I had become and who we all were. The weight of the world on my shoulders, oh goodness, oh goodness. The answer to all my problems, the thing that I had been doing for 45 years, was to get good and drunk first. But, you know, in the end here, getting good and drunk for me took all day and into the night, and including the moments of, of insomnia throughout the middle of the night, it turned out, in these past last days, because it took much more, much more to get drunk, much more to ease the pain. Seven seconds wasn't even apparent to me. It was less than that, and I had to pound on more. I had darn little time in my world to do anything else but to get the business done of getting this food down. I was licked. As I was pounding down the food, and yes, I was pounding down the food because the feelings kept pushing up, pushing up against. It was not a pretty sight to watch me eat. I had no manners at all. It was a mess. You know, in that moment, in this particular day, in this particular time, I felt a sort of warmth near my ear and the right cheek of my face. And then I heard a voice. This you never have to do again. You can replace the power of this with me. (laughs) I didn't move a muscle. My eyes slowly shifted back and forth from side to side. Side to side. Holding my head still, holding my breath. Did I hear what I think I just heard? Was this an audible voice? Something group had come over me. I did not want to move for fear of this thing that had just happened to me might evaporate. I sat trying to open my mouth to respond because the voice that I heard seemed to beg a question or some sort of response. And I finally eked out a word. How? And I heard nothing. And I said more. How can I possibly leave this all behind? And the voice said, Stand up. Stand up and walk away. It still gets me after almost nine and a half years. Turn your back on this and simply walk away and never, never look back. It was this experience, and I tell you, it was a real experience that shifted my life in a moment. Oh, God. From demoralized, shameful, deteriorated, hollow, disgusted, and completely broken down to snap, a flash, my brain clicked, 
and the trajectory changed. Shame did not mean the same thing anymore. Demoralized did not mean the same thing anymore. Disgusted did not mean the same thing, or it seemed anyway. It was the same, yet it had a different affect. Was I able to get up and go, go, go and fight the good fight at that moment? No. I still did not know where to go, what to do. But I knew then that these same words that had ruled my thinking and taken my life now had me seeing me differently, simply untreated. I, a good person with a serious condition, simply untreated. I realized at my very fingertips, I had a solution that worked and a power to lead the way. That power to lead the way were fellows in these rooms that jumped into that dark hole with me with a flashlight and a map, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, to hold my hand and to lead us out of the hole. They brought me out. Our admissions of personal powerlessness finally turned out to be the firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. The personal powerlessness that I admitted to was wrapped in humility. I tried all that I knew. Now I put my hand, excuse me, now I put my life in the hands of a power that could and would and did transform me. It promised me and it delivered. This story of mine never changes. I've been able to say it for over nine and a half years now. It has been the experience that I have never, ever, ever forgotten. And as you can tell here, remains, remains in that emotional, humble place in my heart because I know I did not do it. I had two, but two alternatives. One, to take it to the bitter end, and I was getting worse. I was getting worse. I don't have the time to give you the span. Or I was to act on this experience by picking up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at my feet and follow directions. And that is the good news, that I always continue to scream from the rooftops. The news has gotten better over time. You can hear the story and make a decision for your own life. This 12 and 12, throughout it, writes that the bottom has been raised. Identify in, not out. Raise your bottom. Look around the corner. Please, I implore you. Implore you. I, I invite you. Perhaps you haven't gotten as bad as this. Again, I invite you. Make a higher bottom. Your firm bedrock and join me. I live a life transformed upon this simple moment in time. The same set of circumstances turned around to be the hope that continues to spring eternal for me. I am forever changed and eternally grateful. My name is Melanie C. <laughs> oh, gosh. From Oregon. And I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. 
Oh, goodness. Thanks, Leah. Pass. Thank you, Melanie C. Now I introduce Larry Kay from Illinois. Hey, I'm not following that. <laughs> Some powerful <laughs> stuff there, Leah. Oh, man. Thank you, Melanie. This is Larry, <laughs> recovered compulsive overeater from Chicago. Oh, thank you, um, Amy and Melanie. It's great stuff. Um, and it's just honesty, you know. It's just honesty, what we're, we're talking about in step one. Let me read... Uh, my paragraph, <clears throat> we know that little good can come to any alcoholic who joins AA unless he has first accepted his devastating weakness and all its consequences. Until he so humbles himself, his sobriety, if any, will be precarious. Of real happiness, he will find none at all. Proved beyond doubt by, by an immense experience, this is one of the facts of AA life. The principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is the main taproot from which our whole society has sprung and flowered. Well, you know, um, we're talking in, in this paragraph about acceptance. And, uh, you know, acceptance is an interesting concept. You know, after all, you know, you know how, how does one truly know when when he or she has accepted this devastating disease with all its consequences, with all its ramifications? You know, I'm, I'm asked this a lot. I don't know. I mean, if I'm honest, how do I know if I've reached acceptance? You know, in other words, you know, what evidence, I had to ask myself, what evidence do I have, do any of us truly have, that we've reached the level of acceptance necessary in admitting complete defeat. Because, you know, when I look at my experience, what I've realized over the years, it's not enough to simply enter the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. You know, we, we get on the line, a vision for you, perhaps you're here. I can identify with the person that's out there that, you know, that, uh, you know, you're not going to be sprinkled with pixie dust. I can tell you that. Um, I can tell you that, but from bitter years and years of experience of hoping that I would be, you know, for me, the answer was an emphatic, no, it's not enough to simply enter the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, you know, five years, five bitter years um, before I was willing. And, you know, I, I was mostly abstinent. I would tell you, I was mostly abstinent for that time. And get this, you know what? My, my physical body began to change. Yeah. Diets will do that. <laughs> Um, you know, if you go from, you know, from three food, my food, here's my food plan. This is what it was. Three food, fast food meals a day with uh, candy and, and, and other sugary dessert items and crunchy, salty, savory stuff in between. And then, uh, oh, three meals with maybe a pizza at night, you know, the whole thing. Most of this done either in my car or in isolation with the drapes, you know, closed and, uh, the TV on in, in a major fog. Maybe you can relate, but that was my experience. No, it's, uh, and I was going to the meetings. See, uh, you know, it, it, it would almost be comical if you think about it, if it weren't so devastatingly sad to acknowledge the number of people that come into OA and never pick up this, this simple spiritual toolkit laid at their feet. They never, they never accept They've never, you know, truly taken step one. That was my case. Many of them leave. Some of them, you know, if they're lucky, they may come back before dying of this disease. I know several people, unfortunately, that have died in the throes of this disease. 
you know, I, I thought it was my my intentions that that the world was judging me by, but it, it wasn't at all. The, the world judged me by my actions. This is a this is a program of action. Even the first step, you know, we can say the first step is is one of contemplation. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm powerless. Oh yeah, I've tried everything. But you know, there's something about surrender that's distinct from just an acknowledgement of powerlessness. You know, um, you know, my words were very cheap indeed. You see, you know, when my gums were flapping, and they, which was more often than, than I care to admit, um, I would have told you that I took step one. You know, I oh, you got to take it perfectly. Of course I did. You know, of course I'm powerless. And uh, but the problem was I didn't really accept that I was drowning. Have you ever have you ever witnessed someone drowning? You know, it's not not a pretty sight. You see, when a, when a person's really drowning, they begin to panic. They thrash about in the water, and you know, very quickly they determine that they're screwed. No, no time for analysis, right? No time for contemplation. No time for debate. No, no, that's that doesn't enter your mind. See, for as long as I believed I possessed the power to save my my ass, save myself. I would stay in a state of delusion. I would continue to kick away the, uh, the the life preserver. Surrender never meant take no action. No, no. Conversely, I mean, or on the on the contrary, really, surrender meant quit impeding the lifeguard from saving you. Stop kicking and thrashing about, and follow his or her instructions, because my ego said, "I, I know a better way." You know, my pride said, I'll save myself. Just leave me be. I'll save myself. I got this. I'm good. My intellect says, you know, you sure can, you, you sure you can save me? God, where's your certification, higher power? Show it to me. That's my intellect. See, acceptance is an interesting concept to me. It's, uh, you know, in step one, the program calls for us to so humble ourselves that our, our abstinence, if any at all, will be precarious at best. You know, it's on shaky ground. You know, something that's that's not solid, it's it's weak, uh, it's on shaky ground there, and that was me. And and, and well that's the, the horrific daily devastating struggle I experienced with food, even after learning of the twofold nature of this disease. There's many people that, that, that can that have a uh, head full of big book a head full of uh, the vision meeting and all they hear on it, but a belly full of food, you know, and boy, oh boy, can they talk, you know, and, and, I, and I'm going to tell you, I'm not taking anyone's inventory, unless of, you know, least of all uh, anybody else. I, but, you know, if you are not moving towards, towards uh, physical and emotional and spiritual recovery, my physical packaging, yeah, I was 100 pounds. Some of the consequences, I was 100 pounds more than I am today, just about. So if you saw me, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get a chance to meet you, you know. That would be so, uh, such a privilege, you know, during, during the, uh, the Vision for You conference. But you'll see physical packaging. Thank you, God, I didn't do this. <laughs> you think I'm going to walk around look at me? No, no, no. Oh, no, I didn't do this. God did this for me. This is a spiritual program. If you think this is a psychological technique, some sort of uh, some sort of uh, way that you can wrap your brain around it and get this done yourself, good luck. I tried it. It doesn't work. 
the spiritual awakening is God does the heavy lifting. We immerse ourselves in this practical program of action, which is the steps. You want to play games? That's what I did. You looking for the, you know, for the shortcut? Yeah, I've done that. Keep looking. I don't mind if you look, because I know, I know from my experience where you're going to end up. And it's okay. When you, if, if you don't die and you come back, I will love you and I will tolerate you. God, is, God has done that for me. I was a very intolerant person. The consequences for me were, were, were horrible. Let me tell you about some of the consequences. You know, the consequences included things like, uh, you know, 100 pounds more than I am today, two failed marriages, no emotional and physical intimacy in those relationships or all the other relationships that I sought as my God. The consequences for me were two liposuction surgeries. That's it. Take the fat away from my belly. Remove it, then it's gone. But no, I was still stuck with a spiritual malady. And I never knew that that's what this was. It was all along it was a spiritual malady. That once the spiritual malady was overcome, I would straighten out physically, which I did. Thank you, God. And emotionally, which I, 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 I have started along that path, no question, each day. Progress in that spiritual growth. I t- tore up relationships. I chewed people up and spit them out. You know the, the you know the people you you run into customer service people. Oh boy, could I really tear you up with sarcasm, and with uh, you know? And then I was very passive aggressive in my behavior. I'll give you the silent treatment. See, God has restored me to sanity today. God did that because eventually, in step one, we have to admit that we are utterly powerless. We are utterly powerless. And, you know, the, the, uh, this eluded me. And, yes, I was a prey to misery and depression. You know, anxiety, panic attacks, anxiety that was devastating. It was my constant companion every day. It says on page 52 we were having trouble with personal relationships check couldn't control our emotional natures yes that was me we were a prey to misery and depression we couldn't make a living i couldn't hold a job couldn't get along with other people we had a feeling of uselessness we were full of fear oh we were unhappy we couldn't seem to be of real help to other people i couldn't how could i be of help to anybody else i could be of help to myself but you know you know i'll wrap up and say that the thing is, where we talk about this is there is a solution. There is a solution that will change, that will change this experience for us. We shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat. That's the main taproot from which this whole society has sprung and flowered. That's where Bill started, and we are a link in the chain all the way from the beginning. And now when I say thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm not just a, it's not a, it's just a tagline. I heard a person much wiser than me say that, and I, 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 I knew, and then I understood. Wisdom is gained through experience. You can hear my words all day long. Go have your own experience by having the courage to see this process through. Then you'll tell me what it feels like. You don't need to come to me, Larry, you know, this one, that. How do I get that? Just do the work. That's how you surrender. How we know we've surrendered is if we do the work all the way through. 
sequentially, and then you can tell someone else in carrying the message what's happened to you. Thanks, Leah, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Larry Kay. And I welcome Esther C. to the line. Good morning. My name is Esther C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Canada. When first challenged to admit defeat, most of us revolted. We had approached AA expecting to be taught self-confidence. Then we had been told that so far as alcohol is concerned, self-confidence was no good whatever. In fact, it was a total liability. Our sponsors declared that we were the victims of a mental obsession so subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower could break it. There was, they said, no such thing as the personal conquest of this compulsion by the unaided will. Relentlessly deepening our dilemma, our sponsors pointed out our increasing sensitivity to alcohol, an allergy, they called it. The tyrant alcohol wielded a double-edged sword over us. First, we were smitten by an insane urge that condemned us to go on drinking, and then by an allergy of the body that ensured we would ultimately destroy ourselves in the process. Few indeed were those who so assailed had ever won through in single-handed combat. It was a statistical fact that alcoholics almost never recovered on their own resources, and this has been true, apparently, ever since men had first crushed grapes. So when first challenged to admit defeat, most of us had revolted. Well, I'll tell you that for me, um, this idea that I had to admit defeat came as a total surprise. And truthfully, I was suspicious about admitting complete defeat. It was not at all to my liking, and it was not how I was raised to take care of my problems. And it was certainly not the message that I absorbed in our what you would like to call pull yourself by your bootstraps culture that I grew up with. I mean, I was always hearing stories that, you know, this is the American dream, right? You come here with nothing but the clothes on your back and or whatever limited background you happen to be coming from and you face challenges on all fronts and you use your smarts or your talents or your perseverance, I don't know, creative thinking, maybe just plain old hard work and that's how you solve problems and that's how you build and that's how you grow and that's how you achieve and become successful. I mean, isn't that how inventors invent things and builders, you know, build things with, a, you know, a lot of hard work and dreaming and perseverance? Um, and that's something that always has worked for me for many areas, in many areas of my life and for many things I've ever done. But it didn't work with the food. And all my attempts at all this rah-rah kind of, you know, um, attempts failed. Now, my first... Um, real wholehearted attempt to solve my food problem was in uh, my very late teens when I figured out that I knew a lot about food and I didn't think food was a problem, that maybe I was a problem. So I thought that with some very fancy, uh, expensive, ongoing therapy, I would figure out why I ate and I'd get in touch with, I don't know, with my feelings, my inner child or whatever they were, each one was preaching. And then I would, wouldn't eat anymore and presto, my problem would be solved. But that didn't work. So self-knowledge didn't help me. And then I thought, well, maybe I've got to find my creative solutions. Maybe the, the solution out there needs a little creativity. So I tried newfangled diets, you know, the kind where you eliminate complete food groups, or I tried other interesting approaches to weight loss. Um, some of them were legitimate. Some of them were a little hokey with, you know, hokey practitioners to match, but there was n- no solution there. 
I also tried what I like to call, you know, the cheerleader approach to solving my problem. You know, a lot of, you know, pumping up with, with uh, you know, inspirational messages with, um, you know, you can do it, Esther. You've got what it takes. You know, I'd put upbeat uh, notes all over the house in strategic places, you know, of course, especially the fridge. You know, things like, yeah, you're worth it. Go, girl. You know, figuring that all these affirmations would just, you know, build me up, all that self-confidence. Um, and then, you know, then I wouldn't want to eat. Then I'd, I'd feel inspired to, you know, to stop eating. But but there was no solution there. And then as things were getting worse, I figured, okay, if I'm desperate, I'm going to stop eating, right? Um, and when I was in those desperate places, uh, and, of course, those those moments were always followed by these grand religious promises, I figured, you know, that ought to do it. If I really, 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 really found myself at a bad place, and I really, really, really wanted to stop eating, that, that God would help me, right? He, all I had to do was, you know, figure out a way to bribe him, and then he could just be my great, you know, divine helper. But that wasn't, um, that was not enough to help me stop, solve my food problem either. There's no solution there for me. And even the tremendous amount of pain that I suffered, especially physically, that wasn't enough. I was at my top weight, 260 pounds. I was walking around with a cane, and I figured, look, surely all this suffering is going to give me the willpower to stop. But there was no success there either. You know, Bill tell, when Bill's telling his story in the big book, he writes there, the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms. For mine endured this agony for two more years. He was lucky. My body endured the agony for many more than two years. You know, I realized something, that there's no objective rock bottom. It's, it's just when we stop. And some people die in this disease and my body falling apart wasn't enough. And then eventually, in addition to all the problems I had with my food, I couldn't figure this out then, but I felt like my food problem was seeping into all areas of my life. And where I was once able to con- where I was once unable to control my eating but still able to do a lot of other things really well, as time went on and the disease progressed, I was struggling and failing in in almost all other areas of life, in relationships, and finance, in my vocation, and in, in my life goals, and just everything. So when I, when I came to OA, I figured that this would be like a full-service addiction club, right? And for, for a few years, it really was that, and I, and I was very successful, right? I had a specific diet that I followed. There was the way they told me to do the tools. There were meetings where I could, you know, share and unload and get lots of love and fellowship, and we did read parts of the literature, and we did discuss the steps, and I thought that was like, you know, the little inspiration bit. And it worked for a while, right? But it, but it was still the same idea. And that is that my efforts were bringing the good results. It was all about me. But, of course, that didn't last either. Um, and, and the relapse was uh, just waiting for me in the wings there. Um, in the big book, page 45, it says, Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed us utterly. So that relapse, after that relapse, I was in the worst place that I'd ever been because here I thought, people kept saying, this is the last house on the block. Well, I'm at the last house on the block and it's not working for me. But I didn't realize then that it isn't going to be all about my efforts. So eventually I began to read the big book with someone in whom the problem has been solved. And so to be told that all my efforts were useless was really bad news. Does this mean I'm hopeless? Does this mean I'm doomed, that there's no solution, that I'm, I might as well just end it all now? But, um, <laughs> you know, after 
starting to read the big book with my sponsor, the news got even worse because um, I learned that I have a problem that cannot be solved by human resources at all or willpower, not self-knowledge, not the desire for things to be different, not physical pain, not desperation, and not struggling and failing at everything important to me. That wasn't enough. There was no person, no situation, no emotional state, or any resource at all that could conquer my mental obsession. Being capable, being organized, intelligent, accomplished, you know, even being what the, what the 12 and 12 says here, brimming with self-confidence, it was of no use to me. I could, you know, even being well-informed about my disease is not enough to, to conquer my disease unless I believe that I myself am powerless. I could sit here and listen to three rounds of the big book teaching on a vision for you. I could listen to all the special editions, and I could quote you know, speakers verbatim. But even with all that, I would still be powerless over food. So that admission of my own personal powerlessness is the conclusion that I need to come to in step one. And I don't have to like it when I come to that conclusion, and I don't have to feel good about it. I mean, most of us are usually miserable when we finally admit it. But I don't have to feel good about it, but I need to believe it. Because when I believe that I'm done, that I'm finished with all my self-propelled attempts, and then I'm all out of ideas, then and only then am, am I ready, ready to embark on the rest of the process and ready to learn about the solution. And I thank you for letting me share with that. I'll pass. Thank you, Esther C. from Canada. And I now welcome Chaya P. from Colorado. Hi, thanks, Leah. Hi, everybody. This is Chaya P., Grateful, Recovered, Compulsory, Eater, and Bulimic in Denver, Colorado. Page 22, the bottom. In AA's pioneering time, none but the most desperate cases could swallow and digest this unpalatable truth. Even these last gaspers often had difficulty in realizing how hopeless they actually were. But a few did. And when these laid hold of AA principles with all the fervor with which the drowning sees life preservers, they almost invariably got well. That is why the first edition of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, published when our membership was small, dealt with low-bottom cases only. Many less desperate alcoholics, or for us compulsive eaters, tried AA, or OA, but did not, did not succeed because they could not make the admission of hopelessness. So thank you so much for asking me to speak on this paragraph. And I'm all excited about the paragraph that's going to follow. Um, but here's, you know, this paragraph is, it's scary if you think about it, right? Because even it's telling us that, you know, in the beginning, even the most desperate cases, even the last gaspers had difficulty in realizing the hopelessness. When I came into OA, I came in very young. I am so grateful. But I'll tell you, <laughs> a lot of destruction was packed in to those 19 years of my life, 18 and 19 years. And, um, you know, it was, it ha I had been like, I think Melanie shared, I had been put on my first diet very, very, very young, at the age of, I think, eight or nine. And um, by the time I was in my teens, I was throwing up in, you know, every imaginable place. I was in college when I came into OA. I just was kind of in college. I had finished college very young. Um, and I was, you know, when I was in college, I knew every bathroom in every dorm. 
I knew every, uh, you know, I had eaten my roommate's food. I had eaten, you know, promised, thrown things out, throw them, threw them in the garbage, flushed them down the toilet. That was the only way to not actually pick it back up again, right? But I would put food in the garbage and put Ajax on it, and I would still pull it out and try to find a way to eat because I could not control this thing on my own. But isn't it amazing that when I went into OA, I still couldn't admit my powerlessness. I remember saying, huh, that's not for me. The good news is that when a few did, it tells us here, and when they laid hold of the principles with all the fervor with which the drowning sees life preservers, they almost invariably got well. And that's what I had to do. I want to just refer back to the big book on page 30. Um, it tells us on on page 32 it says though there is no way of proving it we believe that early in our drinking careers or eating careers most of us could have stopped eating but the difficulty is that few will have enough desire to stop while there is yet time we have heard of a few instances where people who show definite signs of alcoholism or compulsive eating were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. And then they go on to tell us the story of someone who was able to go, wow, this is a problem for me, so I'm going to stop and stop for a very long period of time. The problem was it wasn't stopping for good. And that's the piece that was um, that I really had to get, and that's the piece of step one, is that it's, is that it's stopping for good. It's not stopping for a period of time. It's stopping for good. And that's hard. That's hard even for the last gasper. But the best piece of this, um, you know, of this essay that Bill wrote based on his experience is that, is that we can, you know, we can get this. If we grab on, here, here's the, the clue. When they laid hold of the principles with all the fervor with which the drowning sees life preservers, they almost invariably got well. Um, that that's telling me what needs to happen today, and that if I can grab hold of this, no matter where my bottom is, um, and I was told, you know, your your bottom is when you stop digging. That's when you hit your bottom, right? When I stop digging my own solutions, when I stop digging my own thinking about the way this is supposed to be, then then I hit my bottom. And when I was able to grab when I was able to grab hold of these principles with which the drowning sees life preservers, that means I'm gonna die if I don't grab hold. That's that's what I need to understand and what I needed to understand. Um, you know, it, it tells us many less desperate tried but couldn't succeed because they could not make the admission of hopelessness. So I also want to go into the big book on page 48 where it says, where it says here, um, hold on, let me just find it. It's talking about the solution to our problem, which it, maybe it's 46. Um, I cannot find it at the moment. I just had it right before I was speaking. But it talks about the prejudice. Here we go. Page 48, the bottom of the the, the top, you know, the top where it, it's starting out on a continuing from page 47. 
the bottom of that first paragraph, it says, um, faced with alcoholic destruction, right? So though, so many of us have been so touchy that even casual reference to spiritual things made us bristle with antagonism. This sort of thinking had to be abandoned. Though some of us resisted, we found no great difficulty in casting aside such feelings. Faced with alcoholic destruction, and I have my note here says in step one, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. In this respect, alcohol, or for us food, was a great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. Sometimes this was a tedious process. We hope no one else will be prejudiced for as long as some of us were. So it's about, you know, is, has it persuaded you? Has it beaten you down? And I think the beauty of a meeting such as an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, such as A Vision for You, where we study the, the, the big book, the instructions, you know, when we learn in step one, and this was my experience because I had never really gotten it. I had been in the rooms and been, quote, unquote, abstinent and in a thin body, but I had never fully gotten the picture of what the problem is. And I have a physical allergy to certain foods and a mental obsession that's going to tell me to keep going. And I have young people in my life that are having to look and see, is this something that they have as well? Um, And watching the process of trying to figure it out is painful because you just want to say, figure it out as soon as possible because it just gets worse, not better. But it does get better if we grab onto these these principles. And what are those principles? The 12 steps. If we grab onto these principles with, with the drowning seas life preservers, we can invariably get well. And for that, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful. And I think that this panel on step one is fantastic that we are, you know, taking apart um, this essay that was written years after there was so many um, you know, so much experience. And the experience is that my bottom is when I stop digging. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Haya P. I now welcome Katie F. from Virginia. Good morning. This is Katie F., a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia. It is a tremendous satisfaction to record that in the following years, this changed. Alcoholics who still had their health, their families, their jobs, and even two cars in the garage began to recognize their alcoholism. As this trend grew, they were joined by young people who were scarcely more than potential alcoholics. They were spared that last 10 or 15 years of literal hell the rest of us had gone through. Since step one requires an admission that our lives have become unmanageable, how could people such as these take this step? It was obviously necessary to raise the bottom the rest of us had hit to the point where it would hit them. By going back in our own drinking history, we could show that years before we realized that we were out of control, that our drinking even more than, even then was no mere habit, that it was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression. To the doubters, we could say, Perhaps you're not an alcoholic after all. Why don't you try some more controlled drinking? 
bearing in mind, meanwhile, what we have told you about alcoholism. This attitude brought immediate and practical results. It was then discovered that when one alcoholic had planted in the mind of another the true nature of his malady, that person could never be the same again. Following every spree, he would say to himself, maybe those AAs were right. After a few such experiences, often years before the onset of extreme difficulties, he would return to us convinced. He had hit bottom as truly as any of us. John Barleycorn himself had become our best advocate. And I came to OA uh, the very first time when I was 15 years old. So I was definitely, um, you know, trying to be spared, you know, those last 10 or 15 years um, that other people had experienced. But, of course, I wasn't um, ready. I wasn't even close to being ready. And but because I had been eating out of control, basically uh, my whole life, I, there was no before and after for me. This was just the way it had always been. So I had no idea that it could be different. I had no idea that I could actually not care about food, <laughs> that I could actually not be obsessed with the uh, candy bars that are on the corner of the cabinet across the room from me right now. You know, I had no idea that it would ever be any different from that. And I didn't believe people who said that it could be. So I had to go back and, um, you know, try my own methods for, for, for seven more years before I came back to OA. And so, you know, this is saying that you can be spared that last 10 or 15 years of literal hell the rest of us had gone through. And, you know, for me, I was so young that I just, I, it felt like I had gone through hell. It felt like I already had hit um, a bottom when I came, came into OA again at the age of 21. I felt like I was really desperate. I really thought that I, you know, had, had gone through enough pain and suffering. And so then I started the deal in the rooms. I started to... Um, you know, I thought that the bottom had been raised for me, and I thought that I had stopped digging, as I had just talked about. I thought it could not possibly get any worse than this. And, you know, but even in the rooms, I did not um, identify with what people were saying. So when people were saying, you know, these horrible, you know, long, day-long, uh, you know, just thousands of calories and and all this stuff that they had eaten, I just thought, well, I'm just not that bad. And so I thought that my problem was just not quite the same as theirs. You know, so I had to once again go back out. And, you know, then I got the real deal. Then John Parleycorn convinced me because there was absolutely nothing I could do to stop the mental obsession. And I didn't think, I really um, didn't think that it could get that bad. And it was so bad that they, I did not even have, um, you know, I couldn't even describe my binges to someone because they were so ongoing. I mean, they were just, they weren't specific foods. They were just ingredients. And it just, you know, progressively, um just was worse and worse. And so these two paragraphs 
are, um, you know, so important to me because it doesn't matter how old you are. You know, this is talking about 10, 15, 20 years, you know, it sounds so uh, dramatic and long, but I was only 27 years old when I did feel like I had done enough and I was ready to say, whatever you tell me to do, I will do it because I don't want to keep doing this anymore. And so, you know, if you think that, you know, you're too young or you're too old or you're too anything, you know, that's what we're trying to explain here today is that the bottom is wherever you determine the bottom is with you and your higher power. It doesn't have to be, you know, 300 pounds. It doesn't have to be 500 pounds. We have, you know, just all these horrible stories. Mine was just below 200 pounds. Mine was 11 months of nonstop binging. You know, yes, there's people who go on for 11 years, 11, you know, um, to the bitter end, till they're dead. And, you know, I was headed for death because I wanted to kill myself. So that was enough pain for me. Um, I don't think I could have kept eating for 11 more years because of the uh, suicidal thinking. Um, Maybe it takes other people longer to get to that point. Um, But that is the good news about this program is that it doesn't matter um, how bad you are. The fact is if you identify in with anything we are saying, then um, there is a solution for you. That there are people out here who have something to share with you that is um, different than everything you see on the TV right now that is talking about diets that only deal with one aspect of this disease, which is the physical. Um, and, you know, it's this, um, it says, since step one requires an admission that our lives have become unmanageable, how could people say, like us take this step if you have not felt like you have hit that bottom that you you think that you know just this one more thing is going to work for you um i i beg of you to go and try some controlled eating to try to go and have just one of any food that you think might be a binge food and if you can't stop you are one of us It is such a simple test. It is so simple to see that normal people are able to stop. Normal people can say, that is too rich. I'm not hungry right now. I'm full. I had that yesterday. I don't like that. It might be stale. All of those things that normal people say, we completely ignore. And it doesn't matter if you're 10, 20, 30, or 50, or 70. If you admit that um, you have a problem, there is a solution for you. And that is what is so exciting about this program is that we are people who would not normally admit. You know, there's 200 and some people on this line right now. You know, we're from all over the country, possibly other countries in the world, and yet we have this common problem. And so instead of identifying out, we can identify in that, yes, If I pick up the phone and I ask for help, there will be someone on the other end of that line that can help me to get through this difficult situation without having to pick up the food as my friend because that same friend turns around and clubs me in the head. 
And until I could accept that, until I could accept that my best thinking got me here, I could not stay stopped. So I'm just excited that all these people have been on the line this morning. Um, and I just, uh, the bottom can be raised for you. Wherever you are today, let that be the bottom for you. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Katie F. from Virginia. I now welcome Robin B. from Minnesota. Hi, everybody. This is Robin. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And why all this insistence that every AA must hit bottom first? The answer is that few people will sincerely try to practice the AA program unless they have hit bottom for practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic who is still drinking can dream of taking. Who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant? Who wants to confess his faults to others and make restitution for harm done? Who cares anything about a higher power, let alone meditation and prayer? Who wants to sacrifice time and energy in trying to carry AA's message to the next sufferer? No, the average alcoholic, self-centered in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do these things in order to stay alive himself. And when I read these last two uh, paragraphs, I, I, the first thought that came to my mind was that, um, that quote, convince a man against his will, he's of the same opinion still. And I don't think that could be more true for us compulsive overeaters. Um, this is pretty big work that we do in Overeaters Anonymous. Um, and it actually, it goes, it goes pretty much against everything that we're taught by society about independence and self-sufficiency. I don't know about you, but my goal was not to develop an eating disorder. You know, it wasn't to get into such a state of desperation that my only hope was to turn my life over to a power outside of myself. That was not my that was not my goal in life. You know, my goal was to use my intellect and my willpower um, to be a mover and a shaker in the world. Uh, the world told me I could have it all, wealth, power, beauty, love. And, you know, then my disease shoved me in a closet, slammed the door shut, locked it, and threw away the key. That is what my life um, devolved into. Um, you know, my, my disease, it turned me into this person. I was um, so tremendously afraid of the world. I was filled with such self-pity and self-hate that I wanted to die. What I was doing with food, um, I started early with food when I had an, a, you know, a pretty big family emotional upset when I was a kid. And what I learned was that, I mean, I mean, all I ever wanted was to be comfortable. That's all I've ever wanted out of life. Pretty simple. And I was uncomfortable. There were emotions. There was really scary stuff going on in my family. And what I discovered is that certain foods gave me a sense of ease and comfort. I would have certain foods. I would eat them. I would feel it coursing through my body. And I would go, ah, everything's going to be okay. So I ate more of those foods, and I went, ah, and it lasted for a while, that sense of ease and comfort, and then I would eat more because it would start to go away, that sense of ease and comfort, and it became something much bigger 
over the years, much, much bigger than I could handle. Um, it became something that I could not control. Um, it kept me from dealing with emotional issues at all. Let me just put it that way, because I, I learned that I could avoid emotional issues by eating. And in the end, for me, I just had a steady drip. I had a steady drip going all day. Um, I would get up in the morning and I would think, okay, I'll hold it off as long as I can. I won't eat until 11. I won't eat until lunch because I always knew that once I started, I wouldn't be able to stop. So I'd hold it off as long as I could. I'd get to maybe 9 o'clock and, you know, something would happen. Maybe the kids were late for school or something like that. I was distressed, so I'd eat. And then I'd be off and running. It would be constant. It, would, it, it was something that I couldn't stop. Um, I would, you know, get a sugar fix. Then I would um, zone out, crash, maybe fall asleep. And then without even being awake, I'd find myself, you know, I w would wake up from a nap and find myself standing at the refrigerator knowing I had just eaten something but not even being aware of what it was, not being able to remember. Um, and then this would continue throughout the day. I would end up in bed at night crying again into my pillow, God, this has got to stop. Please help me. I can't control this. This has got to stop. But maybe tomorrow will be different. Maybe tomorrow will be different. And the next morning, I would get up and start the whole routine over again. This got me to, um, let's see, my top weight was 210 pounds. So that was what I was doing with food. I was completely unable to help myself. And actually, um, oh, oh, I was gonna, I was gonna mention the cookie jar. You know, at the same time that this was happening, um, I, I didn't, you know, it's like I just did not want to admit that this was happening in my life. I would have moments of desperation, but then I would have moments where I would really, you know, debate with myself. Do I really have this? And I heard somebody talk the other day, and it really resonated for me because she was talking about a cookie jar and how she learned very early in life how to put the lid of the cookie jar on without making a sound. And that was me. I mean, I knew how to put a lid on a cookie jar without making a sound from the time I was like eight years old. And as I debate whether or not I have this thing, just the very fact that I knew how to do that, now I see identified me as a compulsive overeater. Who does that? Who needs to secretly take cookies and then secretly put the lid on the jar so nobody knows about it? That's just not a normal thing to do. So that was me. That was me, and I was completely unable to, to help or stop myself, which you know, was my greatest gift, that, that utter defeat was the thing that led me to my complete surrender. But, you know, why do I need to admit complete defeat? Isn't just defeat about the food enough? Well, you know, thinking once in a while that my life was run, running pretty smoothly, um, even with all of the unhappiness, you know, there were moments when I really believed that things were going okay, all that I, with all this self-hate hate that I had inside, it was inside, and I thought, the rest of the world can't see it. You know, I'm holding things together pretty well. Thank you very much. My kids are showing up at school. They're wearing clean clothes. They're well-fed. But, you know, nobody needed to know that I was buying their clothes at Goodwill. Nobody needed to know that I was feeding them as cheaply as possible. I, I like to say that I was on a strict budget. I felt some, you know, took some pride in that, and I could feed my family on $10 a meal. But what nobody knew was that I was skimming the top off of the household budget. 
so that I could buy my binge foods and sit in the living room watching TV while those kids were at school, while that husband was at work, eating the foods that I bought with the money that should have been put on their table, put on their, you know, put into their clothing. So, um, you know, it's obvious I was lying to myself about how well, how well I was managing my life. It's obvious I was not managing my life well. And pretty clear then that just admitting defeat about food wasn't enough. It hadn't worked when I started all those diet clubs, and it wasn't going to work here either. I mean, I wanted a changed life. I wanted to be a new person. I wanted long-term abstinence. I was told that I never had to um, have another compulsive bite. I wanted that. I wanted to never need to take another compulsive bite again as long as I lived. I wanted to be free. I wanted to be free of this thing. I'd been doing this for 30, 35 years. So what that meant was a need for rigorous honesty, which meant that I needed to share my history and my problems and my vulnerability with somebody. And who out in the world would ever do that if they didn't have to in order to live? You know, but for me, that selfishness that led me to siphon off the money for my fix from my household budget, if I didn't get help looking at that carefully and closely, that could have become an appetite for buying clothes for myself or ignoring my responsibilities. So total surrender was imperative if I wanted to have that changed life. I mean, this is where it starts, this this first step. This is where everything starts right here. And, and we heard before, um, I think it was maybe Amy who who said that the first step is the only thing that we can do with um, perfection. This is the only step. My surrender is the only thing that I can do completely. And I need to. I need to be able to do it as best I can in the moment because it sets the stage for everything else that happens. All of the other stuff that's going to keep me safe that's going to keep me away from the food, that's going to allow me to grow away from the food, that's going to allow me to become a useful member of society, that's going to allow me to become as mature and responsible as my higher power intended me to be in the beginning when I was stuffing food down my face. This is where it all starts. And it may seem like a tall order, especially if there are any newcomers listening. All I can say is that you're prepared when you get there. I mean, all all I needed to do in the beginning was to surrender my ways of thinking, the life that I had. I, I surrendered my food to start with. I surrendered my will, actually, to my sponsor. I I asked her to tell me what to do to get well, to get healthy. And then over a period of time, I was able to surrender to a higher power. It didn't happen to me overnight. There was no burning bush, absolutely. It was it was a process of surrendering a little bit more and then realizing I was safe and then surrendering a little bit more. And with that, it opened up every door. It's, you know, this program is so easy when you're not trying to protect your secrets. It's so easy when you live out in the open. It's so easy when you surrender everything and hold nothing back. And I hope to meet all of you on this road as we trudge. Thanks, Leah. I'll pass.
Thank you, Robin B. I now welcome Janice P., our final speaker. Thank you, Ms. Leah. Thank you. My name is Janice, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And thank you, everybody who's here on the line this morning. What what a wonderful meeting. What wonderful shares. I've, I've learned so much. I've learned so much. This final paragraph, page 24. Under the lash of alcoholism, we are driven to AA. And there we discover the fatal nature of our situation. Then, and only then, do we become as open-minded to conviction and as willing to listen as the dying can be. We stand ready to do anything which will lift the merciless obsession from us. What a wonderful way to end this essay, this this place in the 12 and 12 where it explained so much more in depth to me about what it meant to be at this place at step one. You know, we've been, I've been hearing people talk about, you know, the principles, that we grab hold of the principles. Well, the principle that I worked at this step was honesty, was honesty. And, and I would have told you that I was a pretty honest person. But I was fooling myself. You know, I was operating under a delusion. I was operating under a delusion. You know, it says under the lash of alcoholism. You know, to lift that merciless obsession. You know, I call myself a compulsive overeater. And what does that mean? You know, what does that mean to figure out whether or not you're a compulsive overeater? And whether or not OA is a place for you? You know, that, that idea of having this obsession, you know, that, that it occupied my mind in a way, that it occupied my thinking, that engaged me like nothing else. You know, that compulsive overeater that found myself compelled, utterly compelled to repeat over and over the very thing which was killing me was killing me, was killing me physically and killing my spirit. But I was compelled to do it. And was it irrational? Absolutely. Why would you continue to eat when you weren't hungry? When you just finished a big meal? When you had just told yourself five minutes ago, that was it, you were done, and there you are again. Is there anything like me? There is nothing worse than here I am again. You know, that's, that's the beginning. That was my first inkling of true powerlessness. And it was here, it was here, it was in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and here in the 12 and 12, that I began to learn the fatal nature of this fatal nature of this and how desperate did I have to get well I tell you I didn't go to that first meeting because I had nothing better to do on a Wednesday night 
I was driven to go there because I couldn't stand the pain of where I was one more moment. And if you're anything like me, I tried to put the food down. You know, I love Bill. Bill refers a lot to the battle, to combat, you know, that we're trying to fight this thing. And by myself, I could not fight this thing. You know, I was always running. I was either running towards that first fight or running away from that first fight. But I never had any peace around it. And if I did put the food down, if I did say this is it, that's it, I'm not going to do this anymore, someone that, that said to me the very first time, it's like holding your breath underwater. I invite you to try it if you're anything like me. Put the food down and see what happens. Because perhaps you'll learn, as I certainly did, that I couldn't do it for long. And why was that? Why was that? I learned the fatal nature of this because it's a twofold disease. I put the food down. I didn't ingest any of those foods that seemed to trigger the allergy of my body that set up that physiological reaction that made me crave and want more. If I didn't, if I didn't, well, wouldn't that be just the end of it if I put those foods down? But the greater nature, it says, the fatal nature was my thinking. It was my thinking. And what was I going to do about my thinking? So this step asked me to take an honest look at my life. An honest look at my life. You know, maybe, maybe I, I was not doing as well at my job as I could have. Maybe my home life was suffering some. Maybe, you know, if I was depressed, I couldn't bear the people around me to be too happy. And if I was angry, I wanted it taken care of quickly. And if I had this false cheerfulness, then I wanted everybody else to be happy too. You know, it was like living with a landmine and never knowing when you were going to take that next step that would cause the explosion. And and I couldn't see that in myself. And maybe it was the loneliness deep inside me the anxiety, the disappointments, the comparisons that I was doing all the time and never measuring up. I was always misdiagnosing my pain. I thought the pain was coming from not having a nice enough house or a better car or more education or whatever it was. I was always misdiagnosing it. I couldn't see that the pain at its underlying was the compulsive overeating. You know, I wanted the externals to be the cause. But it was an internal problem, you told me. The fatal nature was that I was subject to my own thinking and I couldn't think my way out of this. And I thought, I'm a smart girl. I'm an educated girl. I can manage and control things. Can't I? Can't I? It was my thinking, was my thinking. And I became more isolated. I became more isolated in my thinking. You know, Robin just said so beautifully, when you don't have to live with secrets, 
when you don't have to live with covering up, when you don't have to live with that, life becomes so much better. But I didn't know that. You taught me that here. You showed me. More than just teaching me, you showed me by your own actions, by your own way of life. I saw something. I saw laughter. I saw the light in people's eyes. I saw them living a life where they seemed happy, joyous, free. And you told me that the fatal nature of the disease did not have to kill me, that there was hope. But I had to know what I was up against. I had to know who I was and what I was up against. Because in order to do that, you know, I had, you cracked open my mind and the light could start to shine in. You taught me enough about who I was and what I was up against that I could either say yes or no. It's totally up to me. You know, we like to say that willingness is the only thing we cannot give the new person. But once they have it, there's no stopping them. Because the willingness to see myself clearly and then stand ready to do anything was where I needed to get. It was where I needed to get. You know, that negative thinking, that fighting this thing alone, being in battle mode, armed with my intellect, I, it was proven to me over and over and over again that I couldn't beat this thing. That I couldn't beat this thing. And even when I put those foods down, you know, I like to call it the phenomenon of crazy. You know, the phenomenon of craving, I could see that. I could see that once I took that first Oreo out of the package, that pretty soon I'd have the whole row and then pretty soon the whole package. And I could, I could understand that when you started to talk to me about the phenomenon of craving. I could see that there were certain foods. There were certain foods that I could never have just one of. There were certain foods that I would negotiate to have one. There were foods I would sneak and hide. There were foods that when I denied myself them, I felt powerful. There were foods that I would overexercise in order to have one. There were foods that I would eat only at a fast food restaurant. There were foods that I would only eat in a restaurant because I knew I couldn't have them in the house. There were foods that gave me, like Robin was just describing, that feeling of, Take one bite and, but it was proven to me over and over and over again that just one wouldn't do it. And that once I started, I couldn't stop. The phenomenon of crazy was what I could finally see. It was my thinking. And what was going to help me with that thinking? I cracked that thinking by listening to you, by reading the literature, by going to meetings. Putting down the food was the very first thing that absolutely needed to be done because nobody's going to want to do this thing if they're still drinking, Bill tells us here. Nobody's going to want to do this thing if they're still compulsively overeating. You can't see your nose despite your face. At least that's the way it was for me. That's the way it was for me. But when I did put the food down, when I stopped resisting, when I stopped 
defying, when I stopped delaying, when I stopped denying. And I said, yes, that's me. Help me. Help me. You were there for me. You opened that door and said, come on in. I heard the laughter. I heard the sanity. I heard people laughing about their experiences, the experiences that I've been trying to keep a secret, the experiences I thought I'd take to my grave. I heard people talking openly, honestly about. And I thought, maybe this is the place for me. Maybe, maybe I could stand ready to do anything with you, side by side with you. And become as open-minded to that conviction that if I am a compulsive overeater, then there is hope for me. But there was only one way to do that, and only I could do it. Only I could do it. You couldn't give me the willingness. You couldn't carry me. I had to learn how to walk upright and carry myself. But I could do it with your help. And then I, in turn, could try to help somebody else. Because I tell you, a meeting like this this morning, I can't tell you how it helps me to hear your stories, to hear your experience, and to share my own. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Janice P. from Minnesota. And you have just heard the voices and experience of eight recovered compulsive overeaters. Thank you to all our speakers this morning for bringing to life step one found in the AA 12 and 12. And we'll now open the floor for a brief period of question and answers. This meeting will conclude at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. You can press star one to unmute if you'd like to pose a question to one of our speakers, please. Hi, I have a question. This is Stephanie L. Um, compulsive overeater from California and I want to thank all of the speakers because you really spoke to me I've been in this program for a while and I am trying to stay abstinent and my question is how do you hold on once the initial pain gets better because my pattern is most recently I had 14 days and I wasn't as desperate and I didn't feel as awful and I forget um, how bad it was and then I end up picking up again and, you know, how it, I relate with it's like living with a landmine. When will it hit again? How do you hold on once that initial desperation is over? Thank you, Stephanie, for the question. Any of our speakers want to respond? This is Larry. Go ahead, Larry. I'll just jump in quickly. <laughs> um yeah, just because I can so identify uh, with with the street. What a great question, you know. So you're you're abstinent, you know, and I was, and I was feeling better, you know. And like we hear, you may have heard it said, you know, because um, I did, and this resonated with me. I'm feeling a lot of things better, you know. I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling anger better. I'm feeling joy more fully. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm feeling feelings for the first time. But there can be this um, this delusion, you see, for me, was that when I put the food down and I wasn't um, bringing about the allergy, I wasn't eliciting the allergy, 
of the body. So we have a two, the twofold nature of our disease, the allergy of the body. Of course, that's a problem. But the far greater um, aspect of our disease, the much bigger problem is the obsession of the mind. And that's the, the, very, the very construct, you know, that deal where I can't, I can stop, but I always knew I couldn't stay stopped. You know, because I could, I could diet for a long time and I felt better. The weight started coming off. People noticed, uh, hey, Larry, you're looking better, buddy, and uh, all those good things, and that can give me a feeling of euphoria. So how do I go on in this program? Because this program requires that we have, see, what makes this different than all those diets I went on where I started feeling better was that I was going to have a complete spiritual transformation, complete change, that would bring me into a new relationship with the higher power of my own understanding. And so what do I, what did I have to do? I had to get to the point to fully concede to my innermost self that I was going to see this practical program of action all the way through because after all, as we've heard this morning, what choice did I have? Because many of us are quite disciplined. We could stop for a time, but we couldn't stay stopped. So we, we have a guiding partner, a sharing partner, as they call it. Some of us call it a sponsor that's been through this practical form of action, has had uh, spiritual transformation, and they can guide us through as we move through this, and then we can have one of our own. And then you know what happened to me? The obsession was lifted. It was extracted right out of me. And that's why I can stay stopped this time for, you know, many, many, many 24 hours. So I'm sure others can speak more eloquently than I could. So with that, I'll pass. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Larry. Would one other speaker like to respond? This is Katie. Go ahead, Katie. Good morning. This is Katie F., a recovered compulsive overeater. And I find that what helps me um, is to to do writing. I wrote, um, I've written out, you know, exactly what it was like, Um in those last weeks, months, years of um, compulsive overeating. And I believe it's a gift that God has given me that that comes flooding back into my memory if I think um, it's not that bad or it's not going to burn this time, as it says in the big book, you know, so here's how. And so I can remember, um, you know, Thanksgiving Day, uh, years ago when I got on my knees in the bathroom at the restaurant where I worked begging God to please help me to stop compulsively overeating only to go back into that same place because I managed a buffet. It was like a dream job for a compulsive overeater. I just got to play around with food eight hours a day um, and could easily get all this binge food. And I remember that like it was yesterday. And if I fail to remember that, then I am doomed to go back. You know, if I don't think, um, and unfortunately, that was Thanksgiving, and I didn't get abstinent until the following October. So it was 11 months later. There's 11 more months of, um, you know, sometimes five, ten times a day saying, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop with this next one. That'll be it. That'll be it. And I have to remember that. If I don't remember that, then I haven't finished. I'm not done yet. You know, so um, 
Uh, that's all I can say is that I have to um, really believe that in my own experience that I'm powerless. Um, this, you know, as instead repeatedly on this line, uh, step one is a one-person job. No one can do it for you. No one can convince you. Your own experience has to convince you that you're done. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Katie. Katie. I have Wait, a question. Robin, can I make a quick, quick response Sure, to Robin, and then we'll go to the next question. Thank you. Thank you. I feel so led to say this out loud. I guess my question would be, are you alone? And I'm not talking about – this is Robin. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm sorry. I'm not asking you if you're physically alone. I'm just asking you if you're working your program alone because this is not a self-help group. And I know my first couple of months, I – if I was left on my own, I would have been crazy. I needed a sponsor to get me busy and keep me busy because that's the only thing that carried me through those first couple of weeks and months before I started having the um, perspective shift of my own. So, you know, I think that's a really important thing for us to remember is that we aren't – it's not intended for us to do this on our own. This is something that we do in community with a sponsor, with other people. With that, I'll pass. Thanks, Leah. Thank you, Robin. Now we'll go on to... I didn't catch your name, please. Raquel from Florida. Please go ahead. My question is... With your question. uh, Thank you. By the the grace of God, I've been abstinent for 17 days this time around, and uh, because I have experienced working the steps in my other fellowships, I have felt better than ever and in connection with God. But lately, my problem has been that I feel like I'm an addict personality. feels like I should have everything fast. And it's, um, it's like I think like I'm not losing enough weight. And that is hindering my my abstinence because I try to switch and control my food again. And uh, I guess what I heard today in the meeting, which is like to look at my, at my food plan, my abstinence with rigorous honesty and, and passing it with my sponsor and asking God, um, so what I wanted to say is how do I get out of this thinking like I need to lose more weight, I, I, I like out of this control, you know? Thank you for the question. Who would like to respond? This is Amy. Amy, go ahead, please. Um you know, it says in the big book that, uh, and thank you for your question and your honesty, um, you know, it says in the big book that, uh, you know, twisted thinking does not vanish in a twinkling. And this is why we need a personality transformation sufficient to bring about recovery. <laughs> so at 17 days, I mean, it's no surprise our thinking is still what our thinking is. And that that obsession, for some of us it can be removed uh, you know, pretty quickly for most of us, you know, the garden variety as we, you know, become spiritually aware and develop our relationship with our higher power through the working of the 12 steps, you know, that that type of thinking becomes uh, less and less. But the realities of the mental obsession are that that type of thinking runs very strong. And for me as a bulimic and, and my experience as well with a big focus on the weights and the scales and the numbers, that type of thinking was well ingrained in, in me uh, when I came to this program. And it was no surprise that my focus was very much, although I thought I had, quote, surrendered and admitted my powerlessness, I was still taking my will back 
by thinking those things and trying to control my food plan in the first couple of years in Overeaters Anonymous. I was not truly surrendered because as I tried to control my food plan and dictate to God and to others what I thought my weight was supposed to be, all these things about how I thought I was supposed to lose my weight, it was my version of taking back control. So it was very important to me, and I can just speak from my own experience, in order to stop that mental obsession about the weights, the scales, what weight I should be, I had to go to a nutritionist, a professional, who would give me a food plan and said, this is what you have, this is what you don't have, minus your binge foods, this is your boundary. And I literally had to go to her once a month and get weighed so I'd not be obsessing about the numbers. Because we all know that dealing with the numbers to scale the overweight is just the symptom. The real problem was me and what was inside my head. And so I had to stop that obsession by just putting absolute boundaries around it, which was I was not going to dictate. Someone else was going to dictate to me. I had to surrender control. That's what step one is about, admitting powerlessness in this area of the mental obsession over the food, but the mental obsession and the mind that tells me I should weigh such and such amount of weight at such and such amount of time. I should weigh at such and I should lose a weight at such and such a uh, you know, schedule. It was me still dictating my will. And you can't have two gods. I either had to surrender to the will of this program and those who have gone before and showed showed me the way, and a professional that was going to say, this is it, you follow this, without, without, without questioning. Because as soon as I started to think what I was supposed to do, I got myself of triggering that mental obsession. And I remember my sponsor used to say to me very strongly, I mean, she was one of those tough love sponsors in the beginning. She said, Amy, just want you to realize right now, because of this mental obsession, whatever you're thinking right now, it's just wrong. And if you're thinking strongly about it, it's even more wrong. Because remember, my best thinking got me back into the food. And that type of thinking that I had, very similar to what you're explaining, is what led me back to the food time and time again because it was my way of still controlling what it was that I wanted my my recovery program to be. And so I encourage you to delve into more program. I mean, I'll speak for myself. Uh, For me, what was very important was putting boundaries around the food plan, not dictate that schedule of the weight loss, and delve into the steps like my life depended upon it because I needed that spiritual transformation. I needed to be able to let go. And the only way that I was going to do that was through surrendering and accountability and gutting it out through those first three or four weeks. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Raquel, for the question. Who's next with a question? Star one to unmute. I could ask a question. Hi, this is Rabia. Hi, Rabia. Your turn. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, everyone. This is Rabia. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. And and for the, the newcomer in early recovery, just putting the food down, um, how do we recognize that voice of the mental obsession uh, that's cunning, baffling, powerful, and ever so patient, just waiting for that vulnerable moment to speak to me so seductively in the voice, in my own voice, telling me, oh, I've had my three meals, but I can just have this bite. I can just pick up one eating behavior and casually do that um, in the first couple of weeks. How do, how do I identify that voice of the mental obsession? Thank you, Rabia. 
this is Larry. Please, Larry. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks, Leah. You know, okay, so if I heard the question, Ravia, um, how do I recognize that voice? You know, um, obsession, you know, the obsession of the mind goes far beyond, for me, went far beyond the obsession with food thoughts. Now, I know you were, you, you were, you were framing your question in that context. Most of my thinking, when I look back, reflecting back, was obsessive thinking. And we hear it often said, my sick mind can't heal my sick mind. There, for me, there's no truer statement than that. Most of my thinking was surrounded with obsessive thoughts. It's not that I couldn't have a rational thought. After all, most, many of us on the line are very functional. We're in families. We're in jobs. We're, we're living our lives. But we oftentimes, for me, I didn't see my obsessive thinking until I had a complete spiritual transformation as the result of working these steps. So I continued to sponsor myself, lie, omit, do any, anything that I possibly could because I thought that all my thinking was right for me, was right for you, and the only reason I really had a sharing partner, a sponsor, was just to hold me to accountability. So I was using tools, which sponsorship is one, to, uh, to, as techniques in which to get well. Coming back to your question, the tools are designed to support us while we get well. The practical program of action in the first 164 pages of the big book you know, penned in 1939, those are what got me well. Until that time, you know, and it's a great question, Rob, yeah, I'm going to have obsessive thoughts, so I can just presume that just about any thought that I had, certainly surrounding these issues, was, was obsessive, and I had to just take it easy, take a deep breath, and get to work and see what happens. That's all. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. And thank you, Rabia, for the question. And we can take one last question this morning. Anyone else with a question for any of our speakers? Uh, this is Sima. Hi, Sima. Hi. Go ahead with your question. Thank you. I would just like to know how someone knows when they are recovered. Great question. Okay, panelists. This is Esther. I could respond briefly to that. Esther, your turn. Go ahead. Hi. So when I was working, you know, doing the step work, and then when I completed it and it was now time for me to embark on step 12, um, and my sponsor guided me, you know, in that way, I mean, we had talked about the idea of being recovered, and that's what the literature, the big book teaches us, which is um, different than what we, you know, I had been hearing in OA. But um, I didn't, I didn't, uh, there was no point. She didn't emphasize that I needed to feel recovered. She really um, just told me I should be doing every day what I need to be doing. And it wasn't until, um, you know, our group, you know, came together and, people made a point of identifying themselves as recovered where, you know, I said, well, then I must be recovered because the, you know, the promises of step 10 have, have come true for me that, you know, the things that we 
I read about on, I think it's page 85, you know, where I'll have a neutral attitude towards the food. Um, I, you know, like like every slow um, transformation, I don't know if there's a time where we where I could have, you know, pointed to that day and say, well, on Sunday I wasn't recovered, but on Monday uh, I was. It was just, I, I didn't pay attention to, you know, whether I was or wasn't. I just did what I had to do. And then, you know, as time went on and the more I, you know, would be reviewing the big book with my new sponsees, I'd be saying to myself and to them, you know, and this happened to me, you know, and now I have a neutral attitude towards food. And now I've been relieved of the mental obsession. You know, I've recovered and you can too. So it was more a slow realization as opposed to uh, some, uh, I don't know, something that came in, you know, in my mailbox and FedEx and said, you've now recovered and you've completed you know, all the steps. Is that why it's a big book? So I hope that's been helpful, and I'll pass. Thank you, Sima, for that question. Thank you again to our speakers this morning, Amy G., Melanie C., Larry K., Esther C., Haya P., Katie F., Robin B., and Janice P. Their contact information can be found on the member contact list, and we thank you. And I'm going to close our meeting in the way we always close here on A Vision for You from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.